following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, April 1st at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. My name is Robert. I am one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill, and I get the privilege this morning of serving us together as we read and teach from God's Word. And so it is indeed... Easter Sunday, which means it is the Sunday of the year in the church calendar when we celebrate Resurrection Sunday. That's what Easter is actually marked by. It's, it's not so much plastic eggs and candy. It's the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But I just want you to realize, and I won't make a big point of it, but as followers of Jesus, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Every Sunday we are gathered together by his grace and the power of his spirit to celebrate the resurrection of his son from the realm of the dead. Christianity in its essence is a resurrection religion. All Christians inherently believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We know it matters. But here's the thing. We have to honestly think about this this morning, this Easter morning. We know it matters, but if you're honest with yourself, do you really know why? Is the resurrection the theological theological equivalent of two-thirds of what's in the shed in my backyard? I know I need it. I know it's important. I haven't used it in three years but I don't feel like I can get rid of it yet. And so it's just there. We know the resurrection matters, but do you know why? I love how one pastor, his name's Mike McKinley, he pastors in Northern Virginia. He wrote a book on the resurrection called Risen. And in that book, Mike said that often, you and I can end up treating the resurrection as though it was God's way of tying up loose ends. The cross is where everything important happens. But then there's this dead body somebody has to deal with. Maybe you and I can become so busy trying to actually prove the resurrection really happened that we actually forget to be excited that it happened. That's the sentence that has hit me over the last month. When was the last time, just ask yourself honestly, when was the last time you were really excited that the resurrection happened. Over the next few weeks, my prayer is that God will do exactly this. He will make us together as his people ecstatic about the resurrection. The resurrection is more significant to your everyday life than you may think. And so for the next few weeks, we are going to look at how God shows us that and just why that is the reality as we dig through his word together. Maybe we'll come to be in agreement with what one writer said. You may be familiar with her. Her name is Ann Voskamp. She said, the practice of your faith every day. So the everyday practice of your confidence in the gospel, your everyday reality of your hope and what God's done for us through his son, the practice of your faith every day, she said, is the practice of the resurrection in everything. To agree with that reality, you're going to have to be excited about the resurrection. And so this morning, we're going to start our exploration together 
by looking at that very first Easter morning as John gives it to us in his gospel. So the gospel according to John, John chapter 20 is where we're going to be together this morning. So go ahead and grab your Bibles and make your way there. And as you're doing it, let me pray for our time together. Father, we ask that in the next few minutes, as we come to your word, that you would do the miracle that only you can do and you would expose to us the beauty of your glory and the person and work of your son and you would bring our hearts together individually and collectively to a place of confidence and surrender for your glory and our joy. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 20, let's start in verse one. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Let me just clue you in right here. That's John talking about himself. All right. That's John talking about himself. So she ran to Simon Peter and the other disciple, me, the one whom Jesus loved. And she said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, me, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. (laughs) You can't make this stuff up. It's why all the time in here we say, we need to read the Bible like a human. Don't go so fast. John wanted you to realize just who he was in his own eyes, in Jesus' eyes, and that he's faster than Peter. (laughs) It was important to him, right? So in verse 5, stooping to look at, well, let's go back to verse 4. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there. But he didn't go in, talking about himself. Then Simon Peter came following him. Mary is following him. And he went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, lest you get lost on the fact that he didn't go in first and Peter went in first and you think less of John. Remember, I got there first. I also went in and I saw and I believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. So let me help put you here the best that I can. We're, we're going to go somewhat quickly through the chapter because there are two things I want us to understand this morning. That's it, just two things. But to do that, I want to get you as close to what's going on here as I possibly can. So let me ask you a question to try to set the mood for you. Have you ever had your heart broken by someone? Has someone that you deeply trusted implicitly trusted, turned out to be utterly untrustworthy? Have you experienced the intensity of that kind of loss? What feels like in the best way that I can explain it in my own world, like a gut punch from a heavyweight fighter. Have you ever felt it? That kind of loss. I imagine that this is somewhat akin to how Jesus' disciples must have been feeling this weekend of his crucifixion. 
the last memory that they had of Jesus was of his body having been beaten, having been scourged and tortured, having been crucified up on a cross, his humiliation for everyone to see, his suffering for everyone to witness, his apparent defeat front and center. Every hope that had been born in their hearts by this man. Is this indeed God's promised king? Is the kingdom that God has spoken to us of for centuries, for decades, for generations, is it finally here in him? All the hope dashed in a weekend. I need you to understand because I'm gonna try to drive two points home for you. I need you to understand that there was not a single person in the story of Jesus' crucifixion, not the crowds around him, not the people near him, not the executioners who were a part of it, not the disciples who ran away. There wasn't a single person in Jesus' day who doubted the reality that Jesus of Nazareth was dead that Friday. The whole idea that some of you may have heard in school or grown up with, or that is the underpinning of how Islam explains the resurrection of Jesus that says he really didn't die. He fainted, he swooned, he suffered some kind of exhaustion, some kind of dehydration, and then later on his body revived or resuscitated. You need to understand, there wasn't a single person in Jesus' day who believed anything akin to that. Everyone knew he was dead. 75 plus pounds of oil and spices were placed on his body. He was wrapped up in grave clothes. He was put into a tomb. So when John picks up the story in chapter 20, we find that Mary has come down there that first Sunday morning. Imagine the sense of loss that internal emotional turmoil that has to be going on in her heart. Walk there with her and begin to feel what's happening. And she gets there. And the stones rolled away. And she looks in. The body of Jesus is gone. Imagine the distress added on to the loss. So John tells us in verses two and three, she takes off running. That's when she goes to get Peter and she goes to get John. And that's where John gives us some of the best verses in the whole chapter about how he had to beat Peter back to the tomb. But when they got there, they too realized what Mary realized, that they were there, but Jesus wasn't. He's not there. And what John does in the rest of chapter 20 when he speaks about the resurrection is simply astounding. John wants to press something home to those who would read his gospel account. He wants the readers of his gospel to sense something, to see something, and to believe something vital for their faith. John does not go through his stories in chapter 20 to argue the historicity, the factual nature of Jesus' resurrection. John wants you to understand, to see, to feel, and to come to respond to the nature of Jesus' resurrection. Not the fact that it happened, but the nature of it. John needs his readers to respond to the fact that Jesus' resurrection was a physical resurrection. 
Four times in chapter 20, through his use of story, John is going to repeatedly press this fact home because it matters. If Jesus did not rise from the realm of the dead physically and bodily, every single thing you and I believe that we would call the gospel comes unhinged. Everything comes undone. You and I cannot be excited about the resurrection. We cannot, as Voskamp said, practice that resurrection in our everyday obedience and transformation if Jesus did not rise from the grave physically and bodily. And that's what John wants us to see first. So I want to show you how he does it so that we can touch first this week on why it matters and why we should be excited about it. So watch how he does it here. He starts in verse 11 when he tells us of how the resurrected Jesus physically first encounters Mary. That's a sermon in and of itself. Verse 11, John says, Mary now stands weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped and she looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, Mary said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I'll take him away. I love this. Jesus said to her, Mary, period. Just her name. That's it. And she realized. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means beloved teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So Mary Magdalene went and she announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he has said these things to her. So the first thing, and all the detail, let's just deal with one thing that John wants to press home to those who read his gospel here in chapter 20. John wants you to realize very seriously and very truly that the Jesus who showed himself to Mary Magdalene was no apparition. He was no figment of her distressed imagination. He was no spiritual ghost representing a spiritual resurrection. He was the physical man, Jesus, now the Christ. He had a real physical body that she was desperate to hold on to. Now, although he had a physical body that she could recognize, that she could see, that she could cling to, and I know her heart never wanted to let go of, there was something else unique about that body, though. There was a continuity with what they knew about Jesus physically, but there was a discontinuity to what it meant to be resurrected from the dead, and that has tremendous implications for you and I, but we'll get to those things in the weeks to come. There's a uniqueness to this. But there's a uniqueness to it that we should have already seen even before he showed himself to Mary. When the disciples get to the tomb, when Peter and John have their great foot race, that chariot of fire back to the tomb, and they get there and they look in, they see the grave clothes. 
Now, as you go and you read and you, you go read commentaries or researchers and historians who talk about this, what they will explain is that they see the grave clothes laying exactly where the body of Jesus would have been in the exact physical form they would have been in if his body was in them. Only the head cloth was separate, folded. So John's already told us this matters because in John chapter 11, you might be familiar with a story where Jesus goes back to the town of one of his best friends. One of his best friends, Lazarus, had died. And Jesus wasn't there when he died. And so they prepared Lazarus for death. They wrapped his body in grave clothes. They put him in a tomb. And Lazarus laid in that tomb dead for four days. Now when Jesus finally shows up after four days, he calls Lazarus out of the tomb from the realm of the dead to new life. And if you're familiar with the story, John gives us a little detail that we should remember when we come to chapter 20. When Lazarus comes out of the tomb, he's still tied up in his grave clothes. His physical body could not get himself out of those grave clothes. John says his hands were still tied up, his feet were still tied up, and his head cloth was still wrapped about him. They had to undo him. Not Jesus. The physical body, the resurrected king, passed through those grave clothes and appeared to Mary. There was continuity with what they knew, but there was an altogether new discontinuity as well. But that's not all. Jesus is going to continue to appear to his disciples, and John wants you to catch the physicality of it. Look at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week. Now, there's an important detail here, and John is going to mention it a couple of times. The doors being locked. So don't think we were careless. I know I'm going to tell you the story, and you're going to come up with all kinds of reasons why that's not the case. I'm going to tell you truly what happened, and you're going to say, oh, you were forgetful. Someone was supposed to sit at the door, and they left early. No, the doors were locked. And we were all gathered together for fear of the Jews. But Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw him. John wants you to understand and see this was no figment of their imagination. The man Jesus of Nazareth really did die. And when God raised him from the dead, it was no spiritual resurrection. It was a physical, bodily resurrection from the realm of the dead. He showed us his body. But someone wasn't there that night. Thomas wasn't there that night. So John, again, trying to press home the necessity of the nature of this resurrection, tells us of God's grace even to Thomas Verses 24 through 29, Jesus now appears physically and bodily for Thomas. The disciples go and tell him whom they've seen and what he said. And verse 25, Thomas responds to him. Look at what he says. Thomas said to the disciples, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and I place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hands into his side, I will never believe. Thomas has always been the patron saint of the philosophical empiricist. Unless I can touch it, unless I can smell it, unless I can taste it, unless I can reason it, unless I can see it, there's no way I'm ever going to believe it. So watch the grace of God even for Thomas. Eight days later, verse 26 says, the disciples were again gathered together and Thomas was with them. 
And although the doors were locked, I know I'm telling you something you're going to have a hard time believing, but I'm telling you, we locked the doors. The doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among us and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it into my side. It's me. It's not a figment of your imagination. It's not some kind of extraterrestrial resurrection. It's me, Thomas, physically, bodily, alive. Touch me. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. What's the big deal for John? Why is the physical body of Jesus so important to him? Why does he want to press this hard home for his readers the way he does? Look at verse 30. John said, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the king. He is the savior. He is the son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. John said, I saw the empty tomb. I had yet to understand what he had said in the past that he had to rise. But I saw the empty tomb and I believed. Thomas, face to face with the risen Christ. So much doubt, so much confusion, so much loss, so much sorrow. I saw him and I believed. John wants the same thing for you and I. Why? John wants you to see and to believe in the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the grave. Why? Because everything we hope in hinges on it. Because Jesus rose physically from the dead, the resurrection is something that God intends for you and I to be excited about. One reason this morning. Because Jesus rose bodily from the grave, his death has truly paid for our sins. Because Jesus rose bodily from the grave, that means that his death has really, truly, effectively paid for our sins. The physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead declares that the sinless life that he lived in our place and the death he died for our sin in our place were truly effective for the salvation of everyone who believes. John Stott was a great pastor in London, pastored over 55 years in the same church, wrote tremendous books. Stott said that Christianity in its very essence is a resurrection religion. The concept of resurrection lies at its heart. If you remove the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead, Christianity is destroyed. I'm not sure I'm totally accurate on this, so I'm going out on a limb. Maybe we'll do it in the next couple of weeks. But if I began to survey the various sermons that are recorded by Luke in the book of Acts, 
I did not come across a single sermon preached by the, by the disciples on the other side of Pentecost that did not hinge upon the reality of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Every single sermon hinged on Jesus Christ rising physically from the dead. Paul, in writing to the church in Rome, said in Romans 4.25, Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins. He died the death that we deserve to die for our sin. But he also said that Jesus was raised to life for our justification. You see, you realize God could have used any other means he wanted to, in a sense, to declare to us once and for all that he accepted Jesus' sacrifice for our sin. He could have written it on more tablets. He could have boomed it down in a big voice. He could have done anything he wanted. Why did God choose to vindicate the life and the death of his son and to declare to us for all time that it was sufficient and satisfactory? Why did he choose to do that? By raising Jesus physically from the dead. One writer said that the resurrection is the consequence and the demonstration that our salvation is real. And it's the resurrection is the consequence and the demonstration because death is the consequence and demonstration of our sin. You see, if we're gonna understand why God chose and why it was necessary for him to vindicate the life and the death of his son by raising him physically from the dead, you're gonna have to understand something of the nature of death in God's story. God created man to live under his authority in joy for us to be eternally satisfied in him and to live under his gracious rule. But Adam and Eve chose to rebel. They decided that they should be the ones who could make their own rules. In their sin, they effectively made themselves enemies of God. Now to this day, each and every single person who has ever been born on this earth continues to defy God in the same way. We each live as though we are the ultimate authority for our life in this universe. And as a result, we have made ourselves his enemies. The Bible declares this defiance, this self-righteousness, this self-justification, this sense of self-superiority as cosmic treason. And God told Adam and Eve, even in the beginning, if you do this, if you eat from this tree, you shall surely die. Life is found in him. Joy, life, sufficiency, it's in him. Defying him is cutting yourself off from the source of life. It's cutting off the branch you're sitting on. Paul reminded the church in Rome, the wages of our defiance, the wages of our treason, the wages of our sin is death. And here's the thing about death. If we're honest with ourselves, for all of its commonness, we see it all around us. We experience it in different numbers each and every single year. For all of its regularity even in our life, 
if we're really honest, it never seems natural. It never seems like it's supposed to belong. Each and every single one of us, deep down at the thought of death and the experience of death and someone we know or someone we love, we have that part of us that knows it's not supposed to be this way. It shouldn't be this way. Death is an intruder. So one thing we, that we do is we, we work really hard to try to live as though we don't think it's gonna happen to us. We rename it, we call it different things to make it more palatable. We push back against it with all of our energy, trying to forget and convince ourselves that we're not going to have to face it one day. Yet the Bible has been very clear. Death is the consequence and the demonstration that we have sinned against God. And yes, it is something that we were not intended originally to experience. We're going to have to understand why God had to raise Jesus physically from the dead. You've got to understand the nature of death itself. But God so loved us. He sent his only son to live the life that we were created to live and to die in our place, the death that we deserve to die for our sins. This is the message of the gospel that we declare. This is the message of the gospel that we bank the eternity of our soul into. This is where we push all of our chips across the table onto who God is for us in Jesus. He lived the life that we were created to live. He died the death that we deserve to die in our place for our sins. But here's the thing, you and I tend to stop right there. I can't tell you innocently how many times I've sat down with guys who are gonna plant churches and we ask them to tell us the gospel. How do you preach the gospel? How do you communicate the gospel to someone? And they tell me that glorious story of, of sin and of death and of grace and of Jesus. And you have to look at him and go, well, is he still dead? God didn't stop there. He sent his son to live the life that we were created to live and die the death we deserve to die. But if God had stopped there, none of it would have meant anything for us. If the cross works alone apart from the resurrection, then it has zero effect on our life. God did not stop at the cross. God raised his son from the grave. Paul tells us that if Jesus had not been raised, our faith, our confidence, our hope is futile. He'll tell the same church later on in Corinthians that we are the most in the world to be pitied if Jesus did not physically rise from the dead. Our faith is in vain. And then Paul says we're still in our sins. If Jesus lived the life that we were created to live and dies the death that we deserve to die, if he does not physically rise from the grave, then there is no salvation. Period. There is no forgiveness. There is no redemption. There is no adoption. There is no future glorification. There is no empowering by his spirit now for transformation. If Jesus did not rise bodily from the dead, there is no gospel. But the physical resurrection of Jesus is proof that he has indeed paid for all of our sin in full. 
That is why John wants to repeatedly press home to his readers the nature of this resurrection. John, excuse me, Martin Lloyd-Jones in trying to press this home to his own church. Lloyd-Jones says, if the Lord Jesus Christ had not literally risen physically from the grave, we could never be certain that he had ever really finished the work. If he's died for our sins, we must not only be certain that he has died, but that he has finished dying. When God raised his son from the dead, he was proclaiming to the whole world, Jesus has done everything. He's fulfilled every demand. Here he is risen and alive. Therefore, I am satisfied with him. Spurgeon trying to impress upon his church the same beauty. He said, beloved, loved ones, the dying Christ has purchased for you your justification. But the risen Christ will make sure that you get it. Friends, it's very easy to begin to believe that our salvation and our hope and certainty of forgiveness is somehow found in what Jesus said or in the example that he gave, but that's not the case. Our salvation is not found in Jesus' teaching. If it was, he wouldn't have needed to die or defeat death. But our salvation and hope for eternity is in the man, Jesus Christ. He himself is our savior. So if you're here this morning and you consider yourself a, a follower of Jesus, John and I want you to know that Jesus' bodily resurrection from the grave is indeed the surest foundation you could ever have for your assurance. There is no greater or more sure foundation for your hope and confidence that in all that God has said and all that God has promised is indeed true, more sure or strong than the physical resurrection of his son from the grave. It is the foundation for your assurance. But John leaves his readers with a question. He weaves it all throughout the chapter, just like he tries to demonstrate in multiple places and in multiple ways that Jesus physically rose from the grave. Each time he demonstrates it, he poses the same question in different ways. And the question is simply this. In light of the physical resurrection of Jesus from the grave, in light of his victory over death itself, will you believe? John said in verse 31, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. When faced with the empty tomb, not even knowing exactly how it connected to everything Jesus had said, John said, I saw it and I believe. Mary, not recognizing Jesus right away until in joy and in kindness and in love, he speaks her name. She realizes who it is. She clings and she believes. John, with all of his doubt and all the sense of loss and all of his insecurity and all the frustration that might have been present through that weekend, comes face to face with the reality that Jesus of Nazareth rose physically from the dead. My Lord, not my mind is satisfied. Not I've got answers to every question I could ever have. No, I've seen my king. 
and my God. As much as John presses home the physical reality that Jesus rose from the grave, John is pressing for a response from his readers. Will you believe? Friends, there is nothing left for you to do. That is an aspect of the physical resurrection of Jesus. Jesus has done all of the dying to pay for your sins. Jesus has done all of the conquering of sin and Satan and death. He has done all of the rising from the grave. All that is left for you to do is to put your trust in him. If you are here this morning and you do not consider yourself a, a follower of Jesus, let me implore you to not wait any longer. The reality of Jesus' physical resurrection from the realm of the dead is the single most important fact in all of human history. You cannot propose to me a more significant fact. Every single person in this room whether you consider yourself a follower of Jesus or not, I need you to listen to me. You need to understand that every single one of us is resting the entirety of our eternal destiny on being right about whether or not Jesus is alive or not. Everybody. If you're here this morning and you would consider yourself a Christian, you are banking all that you are on the truth of John's witness here in chapter 20. That Jesus of Nazareth rose physically from the dead. The hope of your eternal destiny depends on his resurrection. One commentator said it's only in the light of the resurrection that you finally have an assurance that your sins are forgiven. That you stand in the presence of God absolved from guilt and shame every condemnation that you too will one day rise with him physically. You are placing the, e- the extent of your eternal destiny on how you answer that question. If you're here this morning and you do not believe that Jesus has risen physically from the grave, you are also saying that you're banking your eternal destiny on being right about that. One writer said, if Jesus rose from the dead, you have to accept everything he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything that he said? But if Jesus rose physically from the grave, it changes everything for you. If you're wrong about that, the consequences could not be any more grave. Friends, I can implore you with no stronger words, no oratory tricks, no emotional manipulation. Please do not put your eternal destiny into your own hands. Please put your confidence and your eternal hope into the secure hands of a resurrected Savior. Each and every single one of us will have to stand before God one day 
And we will have to give an account for the life that we have lived. Do not place your eternal destiny in your own hands. Do not stand there that day on your own. Don't face him by yourself. Friends, as we prepare this morning to respond to God's word, as we do every week when we gather, we are going to remember the body of Jesus, the physical body of Jesus broken in our place for our sin. His blood poured out for our forgiveness, but we are going to remember that in the sure hope and confidence and excitement that God raised him physically from the grave, that he is alive. And because he is alive, we have a sure and solid foundation this morning as we take a moment to prepare ourselves to do that by reflecting on God's word in a moment of silence, if you have not given your hope, your life, your whole self over to Jesus Christ, I beg you this morning, go to him. Go to him. Place the confidence for your today and tomorrow for your eternity into his sure hands. There's no special prayer you have to pray. There's no words you have to repeat. There's no parliamentary procedure you have to go through coming forward or going backwards or doing whatever. You just have to deal with him. Confess your defiance. Confess your independence. Confess your need and your surrender. Find in him today forgiveness. Find in him today the sure hope and the sure footing for your eternity. Let someone know so that we can help you better understand exactly what God has done for you through his son. We are going to be reminded of this physically as we receive communion together. He died in a real body for our sin. He was raised in a real body for our justification. And he is the only way that we can be saved and the only hope that we have for eternity with God. Friends, let me pray for us and then we're going to respond to God by reflecting and responding to him in prayer and then we're gonna continue to respond as we receive communion and we sing. Father, we thank you this morning that you are that you are our king. That you sent your son, Jesus, we thank you for your willingness to come, to take on flesh, to live in our place the life that we were created to live of joy and dependence and surrender to the Father. That you died the death that we deserve to die for our defiance and our sin. And Father, we thank you for receiving and accepting Jesus' sacrifice as sufficient payment for our sin and vindicating him by raising him physically from the dead. Father, help us to be a resurrection people this morning. Lord, make us excited, ecstatic about the resurrection. Help us to see how the resurrection gives life and joy and energy to our daily life. God, do this miracle in us by your spirit for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. 
You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.